Hello, this is Love is the Message. This is a podcast about music, counterculture, and many other things. I'm Jeremy Gilbert, and I'm here with my friend Tim Lawrence. Hello. And this is sort of the last in our introductory mini-series, as it were, about covering a range of topics, a range of themes and ideas that that just give a flavour of the kind of thing we're going to go into in much more detail over the course of the programme, over the course of the podcast. So we're going to be talking about the general question of, well, like, why are we so interested in the music, politics and culture, and again, the music of the 70s, of the 1970s? So, so Tim, why is it even an issue to be asking this question? Like, why wouldn't we be interested in the 70s? Well, I don't know. Just answering from a very personal level, like when I started a kind of, when I moved to New York City in the early 19, uh, well, early to mid 1990s, and then um, quite soon after that started to write a book about house music, the last thing I was interested in is the 1970s. Um, I associated, as, as did many people, the decade with bad taste, with cheesiness, that disco was an, an uh, uh, expression of this, um, that the music was overly commercial that it was uh, had a kind of nostalgic kind of element, um, that it was soft, lacking in rigor, lacking in innovation, and that somehow the whole decade kind of seemed to be sort of one that lacked substance, lacked a sense of direction, uh, was renowned for, I suppose, in some ways, paving the way for the politics that has, you know, shaped our lives as we were growing up, which was the election of Margaret Thatcher in the UK in 1979 and Ronald Reagan in, in November 1980. And it was, they kind of, their success was predicated on the, on the, what was supposed to be the failures of the 1970s. So, um, so I went, you know, I went in just on a, this personal, the, the personal experience was I went into a, what became a book about the 1970s, not wanting to go there at all. By the end of writing that book, I didn't want to leave the 1970s. <laughs> this was the whole point is like, once you get got beneath the mythology of the 1970s and it's, it's kind of, the way it it's it still gets to be uh, rep- often reported today once you get beneath that it turns out to be one of the most transformative decades one of the decades of the most potentiality and you know and arguably i think what we'd both say the most musical innovation of of of, of perhaps any 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 decade in in 20th century in the 20th century uh it becomes a decade that's just kind of there's you know we want to kind of learn from and return to um that was my experience or my you know my way into the decade what about you yeah well that's really interesting because i guess i came at this from a completely different angle mm. so i remember when i first moved to london to go to university which would have been all september 1991 i hadn't really got into sort of dance music yet i was interested in things like acid house and techno but i used to describe myself as an unreconstructed post punk mm. and i like I would go. I would wear a black leather jacket, and I would go out shopping to Camden Market, and I would specifically look for jackets that looked like the jackets worn by the people. You know that famous speech Dennis Healy gave at Labour conference in 1975. 
telling people he was going to accept the IMF terms of the International Monetary Fund loan. Yeah, yeah. Basically end the post-war settlement, start the, the long period of cuts in public services. His famous speech with Healy, the Chancellor, giving this speech and all the lefties at the co- at Labour conference are standing up shouting, no, no. So these guys, they're all wearing these leather jackets with lapels. I thought they're really cool, those jackets. So I used to wear a jacket like that. I used to have my hair cut really carefully to look not like a sort of over-the-top, you know, late 70s or 80s punk, but to look like a very early proto-punk, like Richard Hell or one of the guys out of television. So it's very carefully nuanced to look exactly like a sort of early, you know, sort of mid-70s radical. And I remember having conversations with my friends about what was the greatest year for music. I mean, by this point, let me be clear, I was already really into jazz. Mm. Like, I was already really into things like Miles Davis, as well as being into sort of, you know, punk and and post-punk but we all agreed the greatest year for music ever was 1978 uh 1978 was like the moment it was like the when you know the gang of four you know i think it was before the gang of four recorded we thought that's the greatest year. But we were talking about a completely different kind of music and then like 20 years later when i started I, I got into dance music we'd started doing part i'd written a book about it i'd been out raving for 10 years we had started doing parties together when i was shopping for records you know to play at parties also, I thought the greatest year for music was 1978, but that's because it was like a, a great year for sort of disco and, uh, you know, um, it was yeah, various kinds of dance music and, and also certain kinds of reggae, I guess. So I think now I wouldn't say 78. When did you think this, though? Because I'm just, because I'm, I'm a few years older than you, aren't I? So I was like 13 in 1980. So that was the, that was the age of my musical formation. And it was like through David Bowie's Scary, the Scary Monsters album, and then all the, the new wave, new romantic synthesizer music that kind of came soon afterwards, as soon as that, that was. So that sort of formed me. And uh, I'd kind of enjoyed disco listening on the radio as, a, as an 11-year-old and what have you. But by the time I was like, felt like, I was becoming on my way to adulthood and forming a kind of independent taste. It happened through Bowie and all the the circle around that. But maybe you looking a bit further into the eighties, looking back. Well, yeah. Well, my experience was different because I was like I started list, really listening to music seriously when I was fifteen. So mm. I was nineteen eighty seven, mm. and that is really the, a moment when you can say the period of post punk innovation has definitely come to an end. Only people who are real sort of very connected to some very rarefied networks, really listening to sort of American, the news of dance music Mm. that we would all get into later. It's a really weak time for music. So the consensus amongst my peers was that all the good music was in the past. Mm. So so what you did, you didn't even listen to contemporary music. Like I'd listen to John Peel most nights, but I found it all really boring, like almost everything boring. And and so we didn't listen to contemporary music. We just listened to stuff from the past. And, um, and the stuff from the part, looking back to the past, like it was, it was often the seventies. We were sort of already going back. To- so you weren't, you weren't listening to disco particularly, though. It sounds like no. This is what I'm, what I'm saying is, I was listening when I was like in my late teens, early twenties. I wasn't listening to disco at all. Mm. But then, fifteen years later, when I was, I was, all, I was still, I was coming back again and again to the same points in time, just like through different. Yeah, genres, you know, I get that. I get that. I get that. Yeah, no, but I wasn't, no, I wasn't listening to disco. And of course, you're right. And the days when I called myself an unreconstructed post-punk, the very idea of listening to disco, even when I was going out raving in the early 90s, as you say, the very idea of listening to disco would have been sort of horrific. Like the nearest I would have got would be listening to Blondie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember remember making making a Blondie compilation for my best friend and I wrote on the tape, so it's come to this. (laughs) 
<laughs> and that was like that was the nearest we would get. <laughs> and, um, and so, and of course, you know, disco. The the very idea of disco was like completely abjected. This is the thing. So you're talking about the way, and you're completely right. You're talking about the way in which, in the popular, in the sort of right wing popular imagination, the seventies is remembered as this period of failure yeah. and defeat. And of course, I grew up being conscious of that and also resisting it. Like I remember, it was something like my peers would say, "I I could never vote Labour because of what they did to the economy at the end of the seventies." And I would say, "It wasn't Labour who did that, you idiots!" Like I knew that much. Like even in my early teens, and yet. And yet the, the the bits of the 70s I thought were cool, I had been taught were cool, uh, were like reggae and punk. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's, why, that's why I'd grown up believing that the idea that actually disco might not have just been an embarrass- the, the embarrassing detritus, you know, participated in by people who didn't, you know, have sufficiently high levels of political consciousness to listen to dub reggae and, and punk rock, you know, that would have just seemed totally ridiculous. And, it, and then, it, so it's not till the sort of late, it's not till the late... 90s that that really starts to change does it and it's you know it changes it changes really dramatically people's attitudes to that doesn't it yeah absolutely and we'll come back we're going to come back to this in a a bunch in another you know in future programs i'm sure but yeah by by the mid to late 1990s you know house music producers amongst other people they're kind of go you know going crate digging looking for kind of disco records where they can grab a sample to insert some kind of music musicality or some musical idea into basically an electronic house track that you know has got some beats laid down it was kind of house music that enabled disco's revival in part and i think you know um this might make make me unpopular but Maybe it's the way that, generally speaking, electronic music struggles to have the same kind of longevity as as live music. It's, it's hard to listen to electronic music as many yeah, times as as it is a, it is live music. So I just think there's something inbuilt about the production process and values of house music. It had to revive disco. It was like it was without. If it wasn't for house, we might not have got disco revived. But Hisco was predicated on it was going to at some point need to ex- extend beyond itself in terms of ideas. I think anyway, what we know is that d- disco became marginalised. It became ridiculed. I mean, there was there was partly some good reason for this. In 1978, it was it was massively overproduced uh, and commercialised. The, the major labels joined the game late. They didn't understand disco. They didn't like it. But once they thought they could make money out of it. Um, they produced far too much of it and it was very manufactured and this coincided with Saturday Night Fever becoming this kind of runaway success but also becoming kind of ubiquitous to the point where something that people kind of initially kind of liked and thought was a fun movie with a catchy soundtrack became something that was driving people crazy because wherever you walked you would hear the kind of the Bee Gees and images of John Travolta and the rest of it and I'm not sure this had quite happened uh, in the same way culturally before I mean it did break records that, that movie and that soundtrack uh and then you know studio 54 made gave disco a bit of a bad reputation through its kind of elitism and the rest of it so people i was interviewing for love saves the day they also kind of by by 1978 79 they were sort of they were sort of agreeing that disco sucked um that it had become manufactured anyway so i mean and it's the punk scene that you kind of got into in a way that i didn't uh, as, as a in the same way as a young person i was kind of into sort of some more mainstream rock probably as a kind of you know as a as a kid but it was the punk scene that interestingly was kind of reactive it was kind of um, you know react it was one of the groups to react against disco they didn't react against disco in the way that the disco sucks people 
reacted against disco in middle America, where there was kind of quite explicit homophobia, racism and sexism. That wasn't really what was going on in the punk scene at all. But the punks objected to what they saw to be the disco's manufactured character. Um, that it was just made in studios, it lacked personality, it wasn't organic. Um, all of these things, actually, that, you know, disco was all of the, you know, if you just kind of were able to tap into the right kind of disco, you would be able to kind of hear all of this stuff. Eventually, there was this really interesting kind of alliance or relationship developed between people who were into disco and people who were into punk. But it has, you had to get through the kind of the, you know, the high commercialism of disco for that relationship to start forming. So uh, we're going to play a re- uh, the first record we're going to play today is is a Z record uh, recorded by the artist Christina called Disco Clone uh, Z being Michael Zilka and for a brief while Michelle Esteban's label that was kind of set up as a kind of disco not disco kind of label the whole idea uh, Michael Zilka's whole idea was you take the disco beat which will get people to dance and has an appeal to popularity. And then in reality, you don't have to put kind of strings and gospel-trained female vocalists over the top of that. You could put punk sounds over the top of that. You could put rap sounds over the top of that. You could put dub sounds over the top of that. So Disco Clone was a kind of early experiment, if you like, with the punks who were effectively distancing themselves from disco, critiquing disco, yet also embracing some of disco's aesthetics because they they kind of wanted to dance as well. I'm a disco So Disco Sucks was this movement that emerged really at the, at the beginning of 1979. And it just was a movement that, that was very vocal and often quite violent in its uh, hatred of disco and its attempt to kind of effectively overturn everything that this guy kind of um, stood for, both musically and culturally. Uh, because in, uh, I say culturally because disco had cu- become this movement that in, in many respects embodied count, you know, the countercultural movements of in- including gay liberation, um, civil rights, black power and, and feminism. Um, so these were these were seen to be kind of threats to uh, mainstream American society, and part of the reaction against disco was also a, a reaction against the groups it was seen to represent and the values that they were seen to hold on to. Yeah, and when there's an early episode of The Simpsons where they're flashing back to something in the 70s, and in order to signify that Homer Simpson was like a a white low education blue collar reactionary dumbass, he has disco sucks right. on a bumper sticker. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so we're saying that the memory of the the 1970s and the memory of disco as being moments of failure, things we should be embarrassed by, things that the the politics and culture of the 1980s had to rescue us from, we're saying that these are basically reactionary myths. So then there's a question, well, okay, well, what is going on in the 70s? Like, what what is the truth of the 70s that those stories have to suppress But also, there's just a more fundamental question for me, which I think always has to be answered about the 70s. And it's simply the question of, well, how come 
it's clearly the most important decade for music. It's quite different making this claim in 2021 to making it in 1991, for example. In 1991, if you said uh, the 70s is the most important decade for music, like it would have sounded very tendentious. Today, look, we both teach like young musicians. That's mostly our job, our day job. It's like mostly teaching like musicians in their early 20s. Okay, these are young people with access to all the riches of music culture, past and present from the internet. And they don't argue at all. Nobody disagrees now. It's clearly the case that the kind of rate of musical innovation in the 70s is sort of incomparable to any other period. And that even today, in 2021, all significant forms of popular music can be traced directly to some key innovation from the 70s. Hip-hop, dub, electronic music, disco, punk... There isn't anything still today that doesn't come from one of those moments. We can also throw in minimalism, post-minimalism to a yeah, certain extent in the, orche- exactly. in the orchestral, yes. in the orchestral yes. realm. And, amb- and ambient music is the kind of more popular manifestation of that. So, and, that's, and so the question then is, well, why? So what's going on in the 70s? Okay, um, and the, so the general thesis, I think certainly to which I'm committed, and which, you know, I think we're, we're going to want to defend is, look, the 1970s is a crucial historical moment because it's the, it's the moment when this wave of political, economic, cultural change and political demands that has been building up really since the early 60s. Um, and the, and the, that wave of historic demands takes the form of movements like women's liberation, gay liberation, people really looking for a completely different way of life to end forms of repression that have lasted for thousands of years. It also takes the form of growing militancy among workers, especially young workers in places like Britain and many other countries that are starting to demand not just higher wages, but also things like more control of their working lives, you know, more autonomy at work, you know, democratisation of industry. It takes the form of, you know, the sort of rise of the political left in various parts of the world. It takes the form of anti-racist movements becoming increasingly militant and radical. But it, And it also takes the form of the decolonization movement in places like Africa, in the Caribbean, uh, in parts of Asia, you know, really reaching a kind of uh, a high point and, and a high point of its alignment with some kind of anti-capitalist politics. You know, this is really the high moment when like the African liberation struggles are allied really mostly with the Soviet Union or even, you know, arguably with, with, with Chinese communism. So there's also this wave of kind of technological innovation, which is about to sweep all before it. There's this kind of cybernetic revolution is getting underway. That's a slightly different part of the story. And it's not clear at the beginning of the 70s, it's not at all clear who's going to win. It's not at all given that like by 1990, the Soviet Union is gone. China has embraced a form of state-led market capitalism. So it's not clear that, you know, for example, all those trade, the major trade union struggles are going to be lost by the workers, that you're going to have mass unemployment. We know all that now, but there's this real, there's a genuine sense of possibility. And there is a real historic possibility through the 70s that actually non-capitalist, democratic, you know, utopian, socialistic, liberatory political forces might win. And it's that energy, that real sense of, and it's, it's, but it can't be an accident, is always my argument. It can't be an accident that that list of political forces and political demands I've just made 
just aligns, corresponds more or less directly with almost all of these important musical developments. You know, reggae and sort of Afrobeat in Africa clearly are aligned to anti-colonialism. Punk and disco are obviously informed by much of the energy of women's liberation and gay liberation in different iterations. Um, you know, black consciousness obviously informs you know, so much of the important music of this period, including the beginnings of hip-hop, even, you might say, the possibility that the computerized world, the world that the cybernetic revolution is producing, might be a utopia and not a dystopia, is informing the music of Kraftwerk, it's informing the kind of ambient dreamscapes of people like Brian Eno. Tune in, turn on, get down. Love is the message. It's also interesting in the way that people's consciousness, I think, did become more global at this point. Um, we saw a lot of kind of influences from, you know, the East and the South kind of pouring into the West and somehow becoming aligned with this kind of radical sensibility. So there's some records that you can think of, or is there one record uh, that you want to pick out that carries the, this sense of politics coming from this kind of, you know, apart from other things, this de- decolonizing moment? Well, there's loads of stuff we could play from this moment. So we could play some of the classic Bob Marley. I mean, it is an extraordinary thing that Bob Marley, who is essentially a sort of radical socialist, anti-colonial figure, becomes this global superstar. And songs like Get Up, Stand Up, you know, become sort of anthems that, are, you know, to this day, you know, they're played at like ordinary people's weddings and stuff. It's just incredible. And uh, Fela Kuti, like, becomes the kind of hero of African music with his with this sort of Afrobeat, but also a really interesting a really interesting example from the period would be a really explicitly political uh, reggae song. So this is uh, one of our favourites, Beauty and the Beat. This is Max Romeo, a reggae, just a popular reggae singer of the mid-70s. And this is his song, Socialism is Love. You know, it's an anthem by a popular reggae singer from the mid-70s. And it's a reminder that Rastafari uh, and radical reggae, you know, they were they were associated with a very specific political project, actually, the project of politicians like Michael Manley trying to create a sort of independent socialist Jamaica in, in the in the 70s. So it's a really interesting reminder of that sort of post-colonial moment, the anti-colonial moment. You're asking what is socialism and what it really means. It's equal rights for every man, regardless of his strength. So don't let no one fool you, Joshua said. Listen as I tell you, Joshua said. No man are better than none. Socialism is love between man and man. Socialism is love. Enjoying the show? If you can, please consider supporting what we do via our Patreon so we can stay free. You can find the link in the show notes. Thanks, and back to the show. I mean, I think one of the other things that really contributes to the this this idea of the nineteen seventies as being this this uh, it's a trans I guess it's a transitional decade really is one is one way that something we should sort of state it maybe a bit more clearly. You know, the twentieth century and in particular the post war era had been you know dominated by you know Fordist corporate politics and you know and this kind of informed not only the factory space but also conceptions of society needing to be kind of hierarchical and highly structured in order to be orderly and, and um, productive and to sort of serve the purpose of the nation. 
And this kind of, you know, this, you know, the counterculture has came and, and, and wanted to challenge his model for its lack of creativity, for its lack of, you know, you know, um, organic values, uh, for the fact that everything uh, was, you know, needed to be confined and ordered and produced this kind of stultifying society. Counterculture obviously kind of sought the liberation of kind of numerous groups that were facing oppression. But it also saw the liberation of the kind of the human being as well, away from kind of enslavement to these these corporations and these very rigid lifestyles. You know, the, and and Magnuson, um, who uh, was this performance artist who ran uh, Club Fifty Seven, uh, one of these uh, kind of post punk um, venues to emerge in in the, the latter part of the nineteen seventies in New York City. She once sort of told me that, you know, this kind of this movement of musicians and artists who ended up moving to New York City uh, in the late 60s and during the 1970s were suburban refugees. They were kind of fleeing the lives that they're, you know, they're fleeing the lives that they had grown up in uh, with the mums and dads carrying out these kind of, you know, heavily socialized and regulated roles. And they, and the, the, you know, the, the, this younger generation, they wanted to find new forms of freedom. So there was a very challenged, to this idea of corporate America. And interestingly, the corporations were also losing their grip in the very late 60s and early 1970s. Their profitability was going down. And interestingly, their profitability didn't just go down, but wages also continued to increase or go up during this period because the corporations saw that, thought that they or believed that they needed to make compromises to the working class in order to retain their consent. So you had this kind of this double influx in this moment of not only this kind of desire for liberation and all of these kind of groups that were contributing to it, all of whom were groups that were kind of somehow also embedded in their own music culture and started to express their liberation within disco and within punk and within hip hop and funk and so on and so forth. So there was all there was this desire for liberation, but there was also there was also conditions in which working people's wages were rising. And then we have this kind of added component, which is absolutely crucial, is that during the 1970s, cities were cheap places to live. And because the economy was deindustrializing, it also meant that any city that had a significant industrial sector, and I think just about every city in the Western world probably did have a significant industrial sector, these spaces became, you know, semi-abandoned. And it was artists and musicians and other people who wanted to kind of reinvent the way they were living who moved into these spaces, often illegally. You know, David Mancuso, you know, was was one of probably thousands of people who were kind of doing this in New York City during this period. And they weren't poor. They had space. They had... Well, they were poor. They were poor. But they were poor, but being poor meant something different. Well, that's true. Being poor meant something different because the rent was cheap. You could you had access to benefits. Wages were good, wages were good enough that you could work part-time and survive in the city. Well, I would say absolutely, but you know, the the uh, if you chose to be a sort of a poor artist during this period and you know survive by working a couple of nights in a bar a week, which was entirely feasible, then yeah, you were poor, you were culturally rich but economically poor. But then money couldn't. The whole point was that money, as we know, right, money couldn't buy you what was valuable. According to Anne Magnuson, this changed in 1984, by the way. And we kind of see this turning point of 1983, 19, 1984. It was when Ronald Reagan got re-elected. And at that point, it no longer became cool to not have money. Uh, it became uncool to not have money because you needed money in order to be able to do what you wanted to do. 
1984. But it's also the case that, you know, at least for the first half of the decade, wages were pretty healthy. You know, unemployment hadn't gone particularly high during that period, hadn't shot up. You know, the oil crisis of 1973 and the recession that followed in 74 began to shake things up. Uh, And it was during kind of 76, 77, 78 that the corporations started to kind of regroup and, and kind of bring together this kind of strategic policy. I mean, David Harvey recounts this. Um, that kind of, you know, became, you know, became, you know, ended up kind of being realised within neoliberal politics. But, you know, Harvey, I think we, we maybe we agree on this or maybe we don't, I don't know, but Harvey kind of argues that the, the whole thing was a kind of was part of a corporate strategy uh, and devised by the corporations. But actually, to me, the corporate, the corporations were always reactive. They were always behind this move that culture and communities were creating that wanted to drive flexibility, creativity, and kind of and and different different forms of of, of, of engagement. Right. So, the, I mean, this this is, so this is the great debate amongst historians and social theorists about this period, really. So, from a left perspective, anyway, the de- because one of the things that happens in the 80s, 90s and subsequently is that a lot of those ideas you were talking about, the idea of flexibility, the idea of the free human being, they become completely appropriated by capitalism. So this is the story that Adam Curtis is constantly telling and retelling in his documentaries. And then the, the, story, the version of the story you get from Curtis, uh, the story you get a bit from da- people like David Harvey, the sort of Marxist geographer and uh, political thinker, the story is, well, that shows that really... The sort of counterculture and the cultural rebellions of the 60s and 70s were just sort of precursors of a new form of capitalism. They weren't really anti-capitalist at all. But then there's a different version of the story, which I take from the work of people like um, Michael Hart and Tony Negri, from the even from the work of people like Stuart Hall, which indeed says, as you just put it, no, that's the wrong way to look at the story. What happens is there's a genuine rebellion against the limitations and repressions of the culture of the 50s, the, against the, re- the repression and limitations created by the post-war settlement. And that rebellion against it is what generates all the energy. And then what's happening in the 70s, actually, is really is capitalism and the state just don't really know how to respond. They don't know how to respond to this upsurge of creativity and democracy and innovation. They don't know how to respond. And they're sort of floundering around, figuring out how to respond. What happens by the mid-80s is they figured out how to respond. How they're going to respond is they're going to cut taxes for a load of rich people. They're going to arm the police in the cities. They're going to deregulate finance. They're going to let financial capitalism off the leash that's been kept on since the since the, the Bretton Woods Agreement in the post-war period. They're going to use the new technologies to facilitate all this process and they're going to smash the unions. So, but you're right, but with the period we're there's talking also about... So compromise, isn't there? The compromise is, I oh, will give you some, you know, we'll give you the, you know, they, they appropriate the idea of freedom, don't they? The right-wing yeah, appropriate yeah. idea. And, you know, and that's the kind of thing that they, they sort of say, we are, the right-wing are going to give you freedom, you know, and you can have, you know, we now get our freedom for going online, uh, you know, through yeah. all this technology. But when we go online, we're usually just 
encouraging corporations to make even more money this has been this is the brilliance of the kind of the, the settlement we've been offered is we get a little bit of a, a sense of freedom you know we can publish our own music uh, but you know everything happens within a kind of you know within co- a model of corporate profitability yeah you're right well, well i think by the 90s you can say there's a new settlement has been reached and the new settlement is all right we're going to stop persecuting gay people we're going to let women go to university and have careers you know, we're going to let men who don't who don't want to behave like you know Rock Hudson in a fifties film, you know, have a nice life. You know, we're going to let bohemians you know live their lives in you know their private lives. We're going to turn an increasingly blind eye to people taking drugs or living other kinds of alternative lifestyles. But we're not going to allow is any form of collective agency. We're not going to allow you to have successful trade unions. We're not going to allow you to live in housing co-ops. You know, in downtown New York, like or London, you're going to have to get yourself a house and a mortgage and get into loads of debt, or you're going to have to leave the city. But coming back to the 70s, none of that is decided yet. All of this is still in flux. Like it's not, we don't know that that's where it's going, do we? We, we ruled out this track, but when you were talking, I kept thinking it seemed to fit so well with some of the things you were saying. That that track by Machine, there, but for the grace of God, go I, which is a sort of seventies. It's a quite. It's not a brilliant beat. It's a sort of didactic disco song, specifically about the kind of suburban, the experience of being a suburban refugee, about wanting to escape the places where there are no blacks, no Jews, and no gays. I've also got a little thing about Anne Magnuson. I don't know if we'll throw this in. I mentioned being bored by the John Peel show in the late 80s every night. The only band I ever heard on John Peel that I went out and bought the record was Anne Magnuson's band. Seriously? Wow. That's incredible. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love them. They're the only band from the late 80s I think were any good. We're making this podcast because we believe that alternative history and radical ideas should be given as much airtime as possible. Yet it's increasingly difficult for knowledge of this kind to circulate through the mainstream media or university sector. We love doing it and we're committed to making sure it's available for free to anyone who wants it. But at the end of the day, for us and our producer Matt, this is what we do for our jobs. This kind of work isn't just a hobby and we've each permanently lost a significant chunk of our regular income due to the pandemic. We won't be able to carry on doing this without some financial support. So if you have the means and you like what we're doing, please consider supporting us via our Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. And thanks. Music, dance, sound systems, counterculture. This is Love is the Message. We might have both experienced this in, in different situations, but certainly including in kind of when we're with, with students uh, who we've been teaching over the last 20 years at the University of East London. And there has been, there. one of the things that I think we both kind of understood is that, you know, with young, you know, young people in particular, maybe, but, you know, beyond young people as well, there's a, there's a lack of a belief that the world can change for the better. This is not kind of a, something which kind of, you know, drives people in their day-to-day lives. I think there's it's also true that in the last, you know, at least 10 years, it's been kind of, you know, 
rising forms of activism um, that are kind of and radicalism as the kind of as this kind of as the neoliberal consensus has kind of come under pressure both from a kind of nationalistic right and a kind of you know democratic left. But this idea of change that the world could be transformed was was absolutely commonplace. Uh, during the 1970s, uh, maybe particularly in the first half of the 1970s. And uh, Gil Scott Heron's The Revolution Will Not Be Televised was kind of, you know, it's just one of many records that one can easily imagine being recorded as it was in, in 1970 for, I think it was the, the album Small Talk. There's almost couldn't understand how a record like that could be made in, say, the 1990s or something. It just wouldn't have kind of, it wouldn't have had anything to resonate with. I think the revolution will not be televised uh, was uh, originally a, a black power um, slogan. And the song also replies just to kind of add to the kind of sense of, you know, of, of radical politics that was permeating the era. The Gil Scott Heron record was also a response to The Last Poet, um, their record, When the Revolution Comes. So we're just like, there's just like, you know, revolution, transformation uh, is very much in the air and it's kind of in it and it's feeding through communities and it's, it's being expressed in music. The theme song will not be written by Jim Webb or Francis Scott Keyes, nor sung by Glenn Campbell, Tom Jones, Johnny Cash, Engelbert Humperdinck, or The Rare Earth. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be right back after a message about a white tornado, white lightning, or white people. You will not have to worry about a dove in your bedroom, the tiger in your tank, or the giant in your toilet bowl. The revolution will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that make cold. Yeah, so we think, well, if we think that music, if we think that music really expresses this, this sense of cultural, social, political innovation in different ways, on the one hand, you can see that in a really obvious way, in a didactic and explicitly revolutionary record, like The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, mm. which becomes the sort of template for radical hip-hop in the 80s, for example. But also, you know, you can also say that even in music that doesn't have any kind of formal, lyrical, didactic, explicit political message, there's tremendous innovation going on. There's tremendous... And there's in, even in music which is not designed to be listened to at home, by intellectuals it's not designed to really it's primarily designed to move people on a on a, the dance floor you've got some of the most significant innovations in the way in which music is made the very basic fabric of how music is constructed is being rethought and so let's listen to us all let's hear about a classic example of that happening at this time yeah, well, I was just, I mean, we, we're going to listen to Lolita Holloway's Hit and Run, um, which was remixed by Walter Gibbons. I think it's probably, given what you've just said, it's worth kind of noting that the creative energy that was coming through communities, in particular in New York City during the 1970s, but also in, in you know, cities kind of, you know, around the world, the concentration in New York City was, was particularly kind of marked. And uh, within DJ culture, uh, and in particular the DJ culture that kind of became aligned with disco as it kind of first came to the surface in 1974 and 75, ended up being kind of so so kind of um, energised that it created its own format, the 12-inch single. You know, the music that people wanted to hear on the dance floor, the way they wanted to hear it was being 
fed to them through this, you know, figure of the DJ who we've already discussed at some length. But the DJs themselves were trying to find music that didn't really exist. And so they were continually going to kind of album cuts rather than than seven-inch singles because they wanted longer records. And this in itself ended up creating such demand for the kind of the music that, you know, if they could find on a long cut or that they could then recreate through the art of mixing the you know the record companies ended up creating this new format the 12 inch single initially it was supposed to just kind of exist for promotional purposes the record companies wanted to make the 12 inch single give it to the djs the djs would play it and then the people who went out dancing to it were supposed to be you know suckers and go out and buy the seven inch the seven inch version and then wait for the album to come out in which they could basically rebuy the seven inch version this was the corporate model and this and the reaction against the corporate models like no we don't want that we actually want the version that we are hearing in these venues that's been created by these DJs and of course the whole thing the very fact that someone like Walter Gibbons could even be invited to kind of remix this a record was re- remarkable he you know he didn't have formal studio training he wasn't a formal musician these records are being produced by well-established, powerful, connected producers who thought of themselves in somewhat sort of godlike terms when it came to the studio. They, along with the artists, would have been were absolutely appalled at the idea that the, these DJs could come in and kind of basically mix up their work and tear it apart and reconstruct it as they wanted for the purpose of dance floor play. The other thing to know about the twelve-inch single is it wasn't very; it, it completely undermined the corporate model of profitability within the music industry, which was to release seven-inch singles so that people would indeed go on and buy an album. But when people had the 12-inch, they didn't necessarily want to buy the album, which would be indeed seven-inch singles plus fodder. So Walter Gibbons kind of, you know, became along alongside Tom Walton this kind of, you know, in, incredible sort of pioneering remixer. And the Hit and Run is particularly interesting because it was the first time that a label allowed a DJ to access the multi-track recordings of a song and and carry out a, a remix using the multi-track. So previously, remixes had all been effectively uh, cut and paste uh, re-edits. Um, but Walter Gibbons was able to go into the into the into the track and just and remove the horn section. He removed the string section. He also thought. I mean, you were saying, you know, even when there aren't particularly political lyrics, there's a certain politics there. And th- this record's a perfect uh, example of that because Walter Gibbons and indeed also Lolita Holloway thought half the lyrics were just like they were just like terrible. So, you know, Walter Gibbons had the freedom to effectively just go and remove some of the lyrics. You know, you can imagine what the songwriter would have thought of that. Anyway, the result is this incredible. I think it lasts for 10 minutes or 11 minutes. Lolita Holloway, who's just this force of nature vocalist within the disco scene, uh, ended up doing a lot of vamping uh, while she was supposed to be staying silent while kind of the instruments, instrumentalists were playing playing their stuff during the recording session. Walter Gibbons kind of took that vamping and kind of ex- t- turned that into an extended five-minute, uh, four- or five-minute uh, run that goes a- along with the kind of just a, a stripped-down rhythm them section and it's an extraordinarily kind of inventive powerful immersive and indeed innovative track that really really captures just you know how much could change in a single uh, and with it with just a, a you know a single a single a single record
Tune in, turn on, get down. Love is the message. Yeah, it's incredible to think about the precise continuum of people who were doing the key experiments with the use of multitrack mm. and re-editing multitracks in the early 70s. So it's the dub producers in Jamaica, mm. yeah. it's Ka, it's Can in Germany, it's Teo Macero uh, remix, you know, producing the Miles Davis albums. It's those are the key people doing this. It's a really like it's really you can make a good case that like you know it's the most important thing that's happening during this most important period. And of course, the as you say, the invention of the greatest format, the twelve-inch single. And then, but of course, it's so it's not only in New York though that things are happening. Yeah. We've mentioned Jamaica. We've kind of briefly mentioned things happening in Africa, but also this is the sort of moment of punk. And punk is this sort of extraordinary global phenomenon in some ways. We'll come back to this in later shows, I'm sure. But I would uh, anyone who do, who has never listened to the album, the the song by. Queensland band The Saints um, a band called a song called Stranded from 77 go have a listen to that because it's just extraordinary I mean they basically they this band this Queensland band called The Saints invented the same sound as the Ramones at the same time like, without having any contact with them so something is really weird something is going on in the suburbs like globally you know, disaffected white kids who don't have, who pre- precisely are disaffected by the fact that they don't have access to big studios, like the big progressive rock bands. So they're having to use the really limited musical resources available to them, you know, and the very limited musical skills that they have, you know, t- to try to express themselves. And then in some cases, that's just, you know, takes the form of bands like the Ramones doing this sort of, it's very energetic, very compelling, but in some ways, formally very sort of conservative music. And then you've got other bands who are developing, who are trying to, influenced partly by listening to reggae and and things like this, are trying to to develop techniques which will evolve into what will later be thought of as post-punk. And I think, uh, I mean, one of the earliest examples that I know of is this Susie and the Banshees. It's one of the John Peel sessions, in fact, from 77 or 78. It's a source of meditation on, you know, the status of the female body. It's a media culture. Um, So it's very explicitly influenced by sort of the politics and the kind of general, you know, concerns of women's liberation, which are becoming increasingly mainstream. So... Again, it's a really, I mean, it's it's a, another example of a record, although it's completely different. It's like di- aesthetically, diametrically opposed to something like Lilita Holloway, but it's a record that could only have been made at this moment and which has sort of clearly was part of a set of innovations that just influenced everything uh, in many different uh, fields subsequently. You know, tremendously important things are not only happening in Britain or Queensland or Lagos or Kingston or New York. You know, they're also happening in Germany, which you know, historically we don't usually think of as playing a huge role in music culture. But, you know, the great British mark critic Mark Sinker once said, you know, the most, imp- I think he said, the mo- after the Beatles and the Stones, the most influential band ever not to come from America was Kraftwerk. Yeah, absolutely. And they kind of, uh, they represented the future, didn't they? 
they were deploying, you know, the Moog synthesizer. You know, we often think about disco as being this kind of, you know, this live music, and we we under, we experience that through the prism of contemporary electronic music, from you know, including house, techno, whatever. But at the time, disco was often experienced as being, you know, as being quite progressive because it was indeed one of the few genres to, you know, seriously embrace the the synthesizer, in part because, you know, many disco producers and remixers wanted to create a sense of entering into another space and time dimension, uh, which, you know, the synthesizer kind of easily evoked. I mean, obviously with, you know, I Feel Love appeared on a, a, a kind of retro album in which uh, in which Giorgio Moroder wanted to create one futuristic track, and simultaneous to "I Feel Love" coming out, as we mentioned last week in passing, was was the release of Trans Europe Express. Yeah, coming out in in 1977, and it just had this kind of you know, although you know, as, as is often remarked, you know, the music was coming from the heart of kind of white, you know ethnically white Germany, there was something that which connected that record and its sensibility to black New York. Um, its use of, you know, its use of kind of, of, of a, syn- a syncopated rhythm, um, its aesthetic of, of journeying, of traveling uh, in between destinations. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's just sheer strange otherworldliness. Interestingly, it was one of these records that got picked up in in not only New York City party spaces uh, that were down, downtown and kind of at the cutting edge of the culture, but also became a huge hit with you know DJs such as Africa Bambata in particular up in the Bronx, appealing to their funk sensibility. But everyone, all DJs in New York, were kind of uh, tuned into this same sensibility, as some, as, or at least that's what I would argue. Uh, we're often told that the hip hop DJs and the disco DJs and the punk, you know, the punk bands or whatever punk audiences, they all wanted different types types of music. But the closer we look, the more we can see there were a whole bunch of tracks that were kind of moving between these scenes that appealed to all of them and sort of implied that there was also an underlying connectivity between them. There's fascinating relationship always between the United States and Europe in terms of how they perceive one another as well. You know, so, you know, even even in this period, New York City was still kind of often looking to to Europe as a as a, a forward exper- forward thinking experimental space, potentially, uh, whereas, this, you know, there's this um, huge level of kind of, you know, of adoration and attraction from Europe to the United States and particularly around black culture coming out of the United States. It's always interesting to note with this record, Trans-Europe Express, it's sort of where it's, it comes from because Kraftwerk start off in the early 70s, a sort of krautrock band actually doing the sort of Sort of sort of acid rock, like the other so-called kraut rock bands, like Noi and Ashra Temple. And one of the things, several several of those bands, like we've mentioned Cam before, but famously a band called Noi, which just means new. 
are experimenting with what they call the motoric rhythm. So they're trying to create this, what they call like a, a motoric meaning, like motorized, meaning it's like, it, it sounds like a machine. It sounds automatic. It's, it has this driving rhythm. And actually there's a, there's a sort of similarity between you were saying earlier, you were talking earlier about how sort of disco clone tried to use the basic disco idea of a basic underlying beat to sort of experiment with what could go over the top. That's also what sort of instrumental bands like Noia were trying to do. They were trying to create this almost robotic beat, which they could then kind of do, do, do endless guitar noodling over the top of. You know, but it was so they were also really experimenting with the the beat. But what Kraftwerk did differently, and what, what they were the sort of first really popular band to do, is they got rid of all the non-electronic instruments. So they're using electronic percussion as well as keyboards and synths. So. And that's what really created this unique sound. And that's what really... And then I think, I mean, I think what a lot of those black DJs and producers, especially younger ones, heard, they heard this use of the electronic percussion as being able to achieve a level of kind of perfect regularity that James Brown had sort of tried to discipline his band into and that other people have been searching for that would give the producer a sort of creative freedom it's funny because actually famously like Grandmaster Flash always talks about the freedom this record gave him. He said you didn't have to cut it, you didn't have to you didn't have to mix it, you just let it just let it play. And he, he was he, you know, there's this interview I always show students where he says, you know, I, I could go to the I could go to the bathroom, I could go get a drink and like just leave this record playing. So it is really sort of extraordinary. And then someone else, if we're talking about people who pass between Europe, America Britain, a British producer, probably the greatest ever, actually, British producer, thinking about it, who had also spent a load of time in Berlin, hanging around with uh, with, with with people, not not so much with Kraftwerk, but with sort of colleagues of theirs, and then and then also ended up spending loads of time in New York, is Brian Eno. And Brian Eno um, famously credited with coining the term ambient music. You know, we could listen to a bit of music from maybe from his uh, his famous often credited as the first ambient album music for airports and again it's it's drawing partly on minimalist ideas developed by people like steve reich you can trace its influence back through to composers like eric Satie. but really this notion of music which is going to use a combination of some acoustic instrumentation but mostly electronic instrumentation to create these soothing kind of dreamlike soundscapes becomes a really really it's a, it remains to this day like a hugely influential idea and it's informed the way in which we hear music, the way in which you listen to music in lots of different ways. Yeah, Eno's this interesting figure. He uh, in 1978 he he travelled to New York uh, supposedly for three weeks to uh, re record or to produce, uh, I should say, 
a Talking Heads album. And he, during his trip, he, he met up with Steve Mass, who was uh, thinking about opening the Mud Club, uh, which would go on to become this kind of one of the kind of legendary venues that was a punk club that kind of embraced disco and various other forms of kind of creative performance. So Eno entered into this scene. Uh, he planned to stay for three weeks and he ended up staying for three months and then kind of def- more or less effectively for another three years. And during his time there, he stayed in part because there was this kind of such a creative rush happening uh, in the city at that particular moment. Uh, it was a short while after he arrived that um, a concert was held uh, at the artist space that became this kind of formative event for, for the no-wave scene uh, and led to Eno recording uh, an album called No New York, which included this music that is now referred to as No Wave. Um, so Teenage Jesus and the Jerks were kind of one of the performers uh, on that album as uh, Lydia's Lunch Band. Um, so this is, this is the track Burning Rubber. I mean, Eno's really in, Eno was was stayed because he just said that he kind of got the impression that you know he arrived in New York at this at this kind of peak moment of creativity, and that you know five hundred bands might have been formed that week because everyone was kind of you know you know just deciding to kind of do you know just do something. Um, he would Eno would later go on to coin this this term "senius." Uh, which um, effectively combines, obviously, the words scene and genius. And uh, it's Eno's way of saying that uh, the locus of creativity isn't so much, obviously, with the individual as it's historically been seen uh, within Western society, but it's instead within the scene. That is when people, when creative people, or we could just say when people come together and start to exchange ideas, they kind of they stimulate each other. And you know, we would say that this the sum becomes greater than than the, the individual parts. This is what scenes is, and I'm sure that, um, or I'm. I would guess that that Eno effectively coined this term seniors or got the idea of this term seniors from his stay in New York City because he said in an interview in NME I think came out it was either 1980 or 81 that he'd been you know he'd been living in London and there was you know there was a strong creative scene also in London but when he went to New York City he felt like you know he felt as though he had much greater potential to do creative acts and he said that this was because of the level of interactivity both within and between the different music and art scenes in New York City at that particular moment. So it's just interesting that this kind of, you know, hugely influential uh, producer who's obviously done a lot of work within Europe should kind of end up in New York City and like so many other people just feel like, yeah, there's this, there's a, a level of some of creativity that also is socially underpinned that's going on here that isn't quite going on to the same degree anywhere else in the world and who knows it's not obvious hasn't obviously gone on previously either yeah i think that's really kind of interesting to me because i would say you know when i'm defending this broader historical political claim about the 70s that what's happening 
it's not just that like stupid hippies like want to drop out and do yoga and therefore they open the door to neoliberalism, which is basically the Adam Curtis theory of history. It's that actually there's this whole, this is incredible creative, political and artistic and aesthetic matrix of collective energy and collective possibility and, and collective freedom which basically Thatcherism and then Reaganism and then Clintonism and Blairism are ways of containing, ultimately. They're ways of sort of containing it, limiting it, defeating it. And uh, and for me, that is, yes, it, that is sort of aesthetically expressed by the sort of absolute brilliance of, of so much of the music coming out of New, New York at this time. And of course, when we talk about the 70s, you know, history doesn't really work in according to neat, decade patterns i mean really this long period as you alluded to earlier with that quote from Anne magnuson the 70s doesn't really end in like 1980 the 70s as we're talking about ends sort of in sort of 1984 really so this is the tremendously creative period in the early 80s which i'm sure we will return to like literally dozens of times when we keep making these podcasts but uh, a classic from that moment, which really exemplifies so many of the tendencies we're talking about, and which really, for me, is really resonant with the creative, the aesthetic, the liberatory potential of that moment, is a track called Go Bang by quite an obscure producer, Tim. I don't think you'll have heard of this guy, actually. This is, like, <laughs> this is an Arthur Russell, who was an American musician and composer, who was uh, he was a trained cellist? He was someone who'd been around the avant-garde art scene. He was someone. Jeremy, you must tell me more about <laughs> <Yeah>. this guy. <laughs> he was fully aware of the kind of studio experiments of people like Brian. Eno. Can you recommend any books? Of, can you recommend any books about uh, this guy? A, uh, there is a book. I can't remember what it's called. <laughs> it's, Sorry, what is it called? What is your book about? What is your book about? I can't remember. I really can't remember. Yeah, did I give you a copy? I, I think did, I, I just did. Don't I remember. It's your author. Hold on to your dreams. I know. It's hold, uh, I know. It's hold on to your dreams by Timothy, by Tim Lawrence. <laughs> the show is falling apart. Is the book about Arthur Russell. Yeah, but I mean, I do, but I do want to say, like, I, I, you know, the last, but the last book I wrote ended in 1983, and it does it for a reason, and it's because that's a turn, that's a turning point. So whether we want to say the 1970s ended 1983 or 1984 is is debatable, but something turns. It takes Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan a good sort of three years before their policies, their budgets, etc., their privatizations, kind of start to kind of go through the system and take effect. And it's in 1983. 84 the 
but you know we see these effects on the economy uh, the cost of property the real estate market goes through the roof the stock markets in the in the united states and the uk they go through the roof and kind of money enters these economies but it's not it's not just money and well money enters these economies and has its effects some of the positive but many of them are also negative but it's more that kind of a corporate politics uh, kind of takes over again this is what thatcher and reagan are primarily exist to do is to prop up the corporate sector to rescue the to liberate the corporate sector so that it becomes the kind of undisputed bedrock of the economy before we get this somewhat grim denouement of the of this of the 1970s i think we can kind of indeed see the 1980s uh, the early 1980s, not as you know, not as kind of inherently linked to what would follow in the 1980s, but more the ultimate expression, uh, the the final expression of these forces that were kind of generating all of this energy in the 19s in the 1970s. So, Go Bang absolutely is one of these records that brings together so many of the different sounds uh, that we've been talking about that kind of took root and flourished within the 1970s. You know, it's clearly inspired by, is underpinned by disco. Uh, it's got very strong funk elements there are new wave and punk musicians who are playing on this there's a whole bunch of composers from the downtown sort of compositional scene who are also playing on this uh it includes kind of an avant-garde opera singer who kind of performs all of these kind of you know unusual stunts uh, that become some of the you know the the records kind of signature uh, hallmark uh, moments um, and in, and it's uh, there's also it's also a record which is made up of kind of tape cutting experimentations and the use of innovative use of of 24 track kind of recordings and it's got rap it's got rap on it as well you know Arthur Russell amongst all of these things he was getting into hooked into rap when it started to come through so the chanted vocals the chanted nature of the vocals etc all plays into that so yeah it's 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 a it's an emblematic record of what what culture can produce when it's rooted in communities that are able to go about their work and with relative freedom. Love is the message. Well, this is the last of this mini-series that we're doing that's kind of setting up a lot of the themes we want to explore. I think one thing to say is we're probably, in the podcast, we will definitely talk a lot more in the future about contemporary and more recent music. But we wanted to, but we obviously also will. We talk quite a lot about the 70s and keep referring back to it, so we wanted to explain why. And we'll be back, I think, in a, you know, I'm not sure what our release schedule is going to be when this actually goes out, but we'll be back, hopefully, to keep covering as many of these issues and going off in as many different directions as we can aren't we? Yeah, that's what we're going to do. I'm really really looking forward to it. There's one big party going on all the time. Sometimes we get to tune into it. The rest of the time, there's love as the message. That's right, guys. We are going to be away for a couple of weeks and then we're going to be back with a new series looking in-depth at the late 60s to around 1975-76. We're looking at global music development, sound system culture, the emergence of the DJ, all that good stuff. In the meantime, please tell your friends about the show, please share it online, and if you really like where we're going, please become a patron on Patreon. And to all those of you who have already, big up yourself. Thanks very much. Tune in, turn on, get down.